The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is serious, 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 serious fun. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Serious Fun, right here on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. My name is Brian Carr, and I am a professor in the Communication and Information Science Departments here at UWGB, where I teach classes in mass media, game studies, and, well, a lot more. But my research and my passion, on both a personal and a professional level, has always been pop culture. This sort of disposable, inessential thing that we use as a distraction in a lot of ways, but ultimately may say more about us and who we are than what we really mean it to. You know, the TV shows, the comics, the movies, the video games, the music that speak to us on this very deep, very personal level in a lot of ways that sort of uh, reflects and shapes our identity. They give us something to laugh at, to cry at, to inspire us, to scare us. Uh, and in a lot of cases, arguably, they shape our reality and how we react to it. I mean, think about it. How many times have you heard in recent history somebody try to analogize the Harry Potter series to contemporary politics? I know I've probably heard that a little too often lately. Or how many times have you heard somebody use the famous Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility, as both a personal motto or just a piece of advice for somebody else? By the way, as a quick side note for that, uh, of course, we often think that the guy who said that was Spider-Man's uncle, Uncle Ben. Um, but in the original comic, it's actually sort of um, uh, what we call an omniscient narrator that says it at the end of the story. So Uncle Ben never actually says that, but he says it in the Sam Raimi movie, so we'll let it slide. But that's the kind of level of detail that you can expect here on Serious Fun. Uh, so Serious Fun is an attempt to contextualize and legitimize popular culture uh, to really take an academic, professional approach to the quote-unquote frivolous. Every show I'm going to be talking with academics, professionals, and fans about all kinds of popular culture, and in most cases, ask them to defend and talk about their own fandoms. For the premiere episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Michelle Dewurst from the music department here at UWGB about her own experiences creating a new film score for the classic silent movie, Metropolis. So, some really quick historical background on Metropolis with Apologies in advance to both my undergrad film teachers and anyone who might already know this story. If you really want to, uh, feel free to skip ahead uh, to the interview. But for those of you who might not quite be familiar with Metropolis, uh, here's some quick, quick background. Uh, the film was released in 1927, and most would argue, I think it's pretty much critical consensus, that it's one of the most influential silent films of all time. Definitely one of the most influential silent science fiction films of all time. It's the product of expressionist director Fritz Lang, who directed the film from a script by his then-wife, Thea von Harbo, and it was really heavily influenced by two major societal factors that were sort of coming up around the late 20s, uh, the idea of industrialization and the attendant force of urbanization that went with it, as well as the rising sort of focus on socialism and workers' rights. And together, these come to tell a story of a love that is both forbidden by and ends up overcoming uh, the very real obstacle of classism. And uh, for the folks who might not be as interested in that, there's also a murderous rabble-rouser of an android, giant machines, and lots and lots of metaphor. 
Now, it's a little bit outside of the purview of this uh, particular instance to give you this really in-depth description of the plot or the themes of Metropolis. Now, if you want to read about that, there's been a lot of great writing about it. Um, I point you in particular to Roger Ebert's Great Movies write-up on the film, as well as the fantastic retrospective by Noel Murray on uh, both Metropolis and the rest of Lang's work over at The Dissolve. Now, in the show notes, uh, I'm going to be posting some links to these things. I really would encourage you to, if you to dig deeper into this if you either are new to Metropolis or just kind of want to learn a little bit more about it. Now, even if you haven't seen Metropolis, you've seen Metropolis. The sharp angles, shadows, and distortion that characterize the film have made their way into cultural impacts as diverse as Madonna's Express Yourself video, um, the original design for C-3PO from Star Wars looked an awful lot like the film's Machine Man, and most of the R&B singer Janelle Monae's discography is a reference to the film. In fact, a track from her self-produced first album is actually called Metropolis. Much of the story of the concept albums that would follow is set in a city full of androids and uh, classism and uh, civil unrest that's named in reference to the film. So culturally, it's a pretty important film, and that's what makes the next part so interesting. See, Metropolis has really been unfinished for most of its existence. As Kenneth Turin of the LA Times tells it, poor audience reception to the film caused its German distributor to cut it from two and a half hour uh, running time down to a lean 90 minutes. And that's how most of the world saw it. For whatever reason, likely because film preservation was just really not a priority at the time, uh, the original complete cut was lost and never seen again. So that 90-minute cut was really, for all intents and purposes, Metropolis. It was the only version of the film we had and the basis for a really strange 1984 version from the Italian electronic music pioneer Giorgio Moroder. Um, if you have the most recent Daft Punk album, there is a track on that album that is literally just him talking over electronic music. But his version featured songs from the likes of Freddie Mercury, Pat Benatar, and Loverboy. Yeah, that lover boy. Now, in 2002, another version was released that used found footage from around the world to bring it up to a nice 118 minutes, but still nowhere near the original running time and not complete by any stretch of the imagination. But this is about as good as we thought it was going to get. That was all the footage that was known to exist in pretty much the entire world until 2008. See, when the film was originally released, everywhere got that 90-minute version, all the different markets and territories, but the Argentinian distributor by the name of Adolfo Wilson brought the full version of it to Argentina. Now, a print that he brought there uh, ended up in the hands of a collector named Manuel Peña Rodriguez, who sold it to the Argentinian state. They made a copy of it that ended up in the National Museo del Cine. And I apologize for my pronunciation. And again, thanks to Kenneth Turin for kind of helping to get this timeline straight. After about 20 years of logistical challenges and squabbling, uh, another historian, Fernando Pena, no relation, managed to get inside the museum's storeroom where he found a longer cut. Now, this longer cut was still not 100% complete. The Argentinian film censors had come in and done some work to it, and some film scenes were just so damaged they couldn't repair them. But he did find another 25 minutes And this is basically, for a lot of film buffs, this was a holy grail. We never thought we would see this. I remember reading about this when it first happened, and just my jaw was on the floor. I couldn't wait to see this. So uh, 
He took it. They took about two years of painstaking work to uh, put it together. And in 2010, they released it in theaters and on home video as the complete Metropolis. So this is about a 95% complete version of the film. It's about as good as we can expect it to get. Hopefully one day we'll get more. But this is where my guest for this show comes in. Michelle McQuaid-Dewurst is an associate professor of music here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. She's been writing a special new score for the film, and it's going to be played live during a special screening of that 2010 restoration at the on-campus Widener Center on April 28, 2017. That's this year if you're listening to it in 2017, and not this year if you're not. Now, I've long been fascinated by Metropolis, and particularly by the importance of music in directing the emotional impact of the film, and that comes across in every version, whether it's the really weird Giorgio Moroder score or the more traditional classical instrumentation you see in other versions. So when I found out that we had someone on campus working on this, I knew I had to talk to Michelle for this show. So here we go. This is Michelle McQuaid-Dewers talking about her work creating a new film score for the classic film Metropolis. Well, here we are uh, in the fabulous uh, recording studio that is my office. <laughs> I, of course, am here with uh, Michelle McQuay-Dewurst, and uh, you are a professor of mu- music at UWGB, right? Correct. Okay, yeah. So, so we set that up in the intro. They probably heard it by now. Okay. Um, but uh, so we're going to start off, we're going to get into Metropolis and everything else you've done here in a second. Um, but I want to start off by first asking you, tell me the Michelle Dewhurst story. This is like <laughs> one of my, uh, you know, when I was kind of coming up and I was learning about like how to interview people and ask some questions and that stuff, I, I like this question. It's like, what is your story? How did we get from where you start to this point? You don't have to go into like excruciating detail or like, you know, <laughs> like awkward prom dates and you leave that stuff out. Um, but just kind of give me an idea, like, so what, what brought you here? Like, what got you onto this path? Sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, I've been a musician for as long as I can remember um, and started playing French horn in the fifth grade and, and pursued that. And all my musical heroes, you know, at the time were band directors. And mm-hmm. so I thought I, that's what I was going to do. I was going to follow that path. So I went to college for music and I started studying music education and... I started composing because I had enough room in my schedule to take a class, and it was a professor that I liked, and I thought, oh, that'll be fun. And I never expected that to take over my sort of musical imagination the way that it did, but it really did, and it sort of changed my my path. And I guess I just really hadn't had the example that composing was a path that I could Mm -hmm. explore until I got to that point. So I uh, continued to compose throughout the rest of my undergrad and decided that was the path to pursue and went to graduate school for composition. Uh, So this was all at um, Ithaca College in New York State. Mm -hmm. Uh, I eventually went to graduate school at the University of Chicago uh, and received a master's and PhD there studying composition. And then uh, I moved west again when this job became available, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so looking, you know, it was, it, it, the the academic path was always sort of the goal here, sure. uh, but to to be able to be in an environment where I could teach and have colleagues who were into performing the music that I created was sort of the the goal, and sure. and both of those things are happening here, so that's yeah, a pretty great gotta, thing. It's, it's important for any sort of mastermind to have lackeys, right? Like, yeah, have, <laughs> this have... is the origin story, right? So. We have to think about masterminds and lackeys course, and heroes and villains. I mean, you're looking yeah, yeah. around in my office. I can see that that's uh, uh, corrupting your. You know, no, bit. no, it's quite the array of figures. Yeah. I love it. Um, all right, so that's so again. We kind of have this interesting thing where again, you are sort of 
going step by step here, and I, I love that your story starts with the idea that a professor inspired you, mm -hmm. because that's part of what gets you into this job, right? right. Like that's part of what makes you, um, because uh, for those of you who are listening, some of you who are listening you probably know this already, for those of you who don't, this is, uh, professorships are not the most glamorous positions in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, it's something you do because you love, uh, love it, and you kind of want to feel like you want to give back to people um, who sort of given some, you something, so that's it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting, because I'm sort of in the same boat. Yeah. Uh, but enough about, you know, the, the grand glory of academia. <laughs> Let's talk about Metropolis. Um, sure. Uh, Metropolis, a fascinating film for a lot of reasons, um, historically significant. Uh, so, you know, the idea that you have created a score for this film is interesting. And I have to ask you, how did this come about? Like, what got you to this point where, okay, I've, you know, I've, I've done my composing, I've worked on some different projects, Metropolis, that's the thing <laughs> I want to do. Right, right. Well, you know, it... I've, it's a movie that's been on my mind for a long time for a lot of different reasons, and you know I've always been interested in film music in general. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about film music and you think about that in connection with Metropolis, well, there are many paths to follow because there have been so many scores, and that's been really out of necessity because when the original film was edited down so severely, the original score by Gottfried Huppert was no longer viable mm -hmm. for the original film and kind of got lost in the shuffle sure. in all the distribution now, so now, now that's sorry i don't want to but that's kind yeah. of interesting the idea of course this was a silent film sure and so uh i'm guessing when distribution came around to distribute this out to different theaters uh when they sent out the film canisters they also probably sent the sheet music for somebody to play in house right you know it, it's that's i'm not exactly sure about mm -hmm. that but it it if that is what happened, right? Mm -hmm. If we assume that's what happened, then a score that has pages and pages and pages that don't coordinate with the print of the film is pretty useless, right? And would you know would likely be discarded. And mm -hmm. for a long time, you know, people had lost track of the score, and it wasn't reconstructed until the most complete version of the film that we have was mm -hmm. discovered. And so it took it took that kind of sleuthing to mm -hmm. put it back together. So when you don't have the original score and you have a silent film and you want music with it, there's a practice problem to solve how do we provide accompaniment and so there have been a number of solutions to this problem mm -hmm. over the years and so it always fascinated me to see the the impact of the different versions of the score on the imagery of the film so that is just something that that has just been a personal interest of mm -hmm. mine for a while uh, a couple of years ago i team taught a course on film music with my colleague in the music program adam Gaines. and when we were planning the course i said well we have to talk about the different versions of metropolis mm -hmm. because that's really relevant and we even made a final project for the class where we had the students uh, do a little bit of scoring of them of their own for the first 15 or so minutes of the mm -hmm. movie and it was during teaching that class and talking about metropolis that i kind of had that little moment where I said, well, why not me? Right. And uh, it was why right not? around the time that sabbatical proposals were due and I knew I wanted to apply. I didn't have a project yet. And I said, well, this is, everything's coming together in this moment. That's what I'm going to apply for the sabbatical to do. And it all worked out. So I got to do it. Okay. So you, you mentioned that we talk about, uh, and, and again, we've sort of addressed some of the idea of like other versions, of course, you know, the most famous, I think there's like probably three or four main versions of Metropolis. And from a musical standpoint, there's really the big one that is part of the uh, elephant in the room is the Giorgio Moroder one from the eighties. <laughs> and uh, this is, I think uh, when I first saw Metropolis, this is the one I saw okay. and the uh, professor um, actually said, this is not, I mean, this is a very bizarre uh, historical <laughs> artifact. 
Um, so I have to ask you, like, when you were uh, working on this, were you at all inspired by some of the existing scores or some of the existing versions of the film? Uh, I was, although as I got deeper into the work, I really had to put other things aside mm -hmm. so that it could be the sort of logic that I was setting up for the film. Um, I think, you know, the Marauder score is really interesting for what it is. I certainly didn't want to go down that path. No. <laughs> um, the score that I think directly inspired me the most was the score by a group called the Alloy Orchestra. Uh, they are a small ensemble, two percussionists and a keyboard player. They've been touring with the film and performing live to it for 20 years or you know probably more by this point mm -hmm. they have rescored the film every time a new version has come out mm -hmm. <laughs> so they are intimately familiar with it and so i recently um it, this was october of this past year they performed at the milwaukee film festival and i mm -hmm. got to see them live and that score had a lot of the elements that that i not not in terms of material but in terms of mood and meaning that i right. wanted to convey that score is the closest to the to what I, the kinds of emotional underpinnings that I wanted to achieve. Uh, there's a there's a, a kind of a relentless motion in many sections of their score. Um, there's a, a, also a kind of underlying. I don't know, maybe a streak of melancholy that mm -hmm. I get, which highlights the sort of, you know, the difficulty of the human condition of these workers who are toiling underground and never see the light of day. And I, that was something that was important to me to bring out in my interpretation mm -hmm. is, you know, what is it like to live a life that that's, it's that bleak, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that combination of the sort of monotonous struggle and the, the sort of deflation of the spirit <laughs> right. that would go together with that, you know, so, so in terms of, of just the, the, the emotional arc and the musical arc, that score was, was the one that inspired me the most, I think. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, comes up a lot in discussion of Metropolis is that even though Lang did not necessarily consider it as a political film, um, it's hard not to read it that way. And sure. I think in some way, maybe subconsciously, uh, it's definitely that. And, you know, it certainly was inspired by, of course, socialism was coming up at the time. Industrialization was continuing to pace urbanization. Um, and so I find it interesting that the, you actually kind of tried to call that out in your score. And so I have to ask, like, um, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on music. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, I, I basically have said in class, like, you know, I'll tell my students, if you know how to play an instrument, you are a wizard to me. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. But one thing I do kind of know is like when it comes to scoring, like you have to try to let the, the music convey the emotions sure. and the politics in some cases. Sure. Um, so how do you go about doing like, so like what kind of like, how did you actually go about using the music to tell the story? Were there like certain like uh, light motifs you use and that kind of thing? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely thought that way. I didn't want to be extreme in my use of light motifs. I think that can be overdone mm -hmm. and I didn't want to force a very specific interpretation on the viewer. Uh, but I did want to have a point of view sort of come across. And so there are different kinds of music that are associated with different characters in different situations. Uh, when we see shots of the machinery underground, um, I use a lot of percussion. And I use, in particular, brake drums, which are literally brake drums from vehicles mm -hmm. that, that are uh, oh. at different sizes. Uh, 
and so you get kind of a, a pitch contour out of that. And oh. so that, that kind of mechanical clanking, um, just which is, you know, relates visually to what's going on, but also to have these sort of interlocking layers of rhythm to, to show that sort of repetitive nature mm-hmm. of the work that they're doing and, 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 uh, but at the same time, there are melodic lines that happen over the top to try to, to combine human and machine elements into the same musical idea. Um, when we see the character of Maria, who is kind of a catalyst for the action, mm-hmm. uh, she inspires Freighter to sort of leave his privileged life and go fight for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that music is largely choral, and so it's much it has much more of a immediacy on this human level because it's, you know this combination mm-hmm. of human voices. Uh, so that kind I, I thought about it in terms of musical timbre. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about it in terms of the density of activity, when the music should be heavy and aggressive, when it should back off and, mm-hmm. and be more delicate. Um, all trying to to. to to sort of get at the the conflicts and uh, between characters and to sort of um uh, it's hard to talk about it so you could, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel myself getting more at more abstract as i talk about it but that's all right <laughs> but, we do abstract here it's fine well, okay okay but uh you know to to try to to use the musical material as a kind of character development that mirrors what's happening in the film mm-hmm. Okay, and, and so uh, it's interesting you mentioned like the the idea of Mariah or Maria. I guess <laughs> I've, I've been struggling with the name Mariah all day. I don't know. What oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, the um, her character is sort of a dual character in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, you know, she is the sort of at once kind of like the sweet virginal kind of like you know ins- uh, figure representing the workers and uh, inspiring this you know privileged guy to kind of come down and like and and recognize the the class struggle and that sort of thing yeah. but there's also the other sort of like uh star of the film in a lot of ways <laughs> is uh the machine man or the the machine that sort of like uh the evil uh, Rotvang turns into a clone of of maria right and she is the complete antithesis of of that character Absolutely. she's the the uh um, I guess would you call it the Jezebel kind of character, where she's like the. If you're gonna put it in that, that sort of dichotomy of yeah. female characters, then sure, yeah, you know, it fits it, into that mold. Um, so was that? Did the, so when you uh, when you composed that, like, did you kind of like work that in a little bit too? Well, um, I certainly needed to show the different roles of these characters, absolutely. And so, you know, if Maria the human is this human ele- element and this this uh, sort of. Uh, you know, inspirational force for Freighter, and you know that that music is very often choral and and has this this you know, delicacy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I deal with the transformation from Maria the human to Maria the robot, mm-hmm. um, there there's a lot of sort of metallic percussion mm-hmm. going on there, and and that is. Again, you know, taking it out of the human element into the mechanical element, mm-hmm. and also there's that. The, there's <laughs> when my husband and I watch 
certain kinds of films and, and TV and we see something technological that wouldn't work in the real world but works for the logic of the mm -hmm. story. You know, we call it whatever technology. Sure. Right? So when the whatever technology is transforming, you know, the, the Maria into the Maria robot, yeah. there's It's there's literally this, magic, let's be real. Right, like, right. Yeah. You know, it's 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 wizardry, right? Yeah. So so I did want to, there to to be this kind of air of mystery about that process because mm -hmm. it's you know, this is a science fiction film. This is not happening. This is not real, you know, nor would we want it to be. But right. uh, you know, so so that's why I wanted to to go with this sort of more abstract and and resonant kind of percussive quality. Mm. So that's 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 one way I dealt with it. Then when Evil Maria Robot is trans, you know going and, and wreaking havoc on the the, the town uh, and and inspiring people, the the music takes on a, a much more aggressive character. Mm. And that once that is set in motion, the the music of the the full ensemble is edgier and faster and sort of more relentless um so that and that sort of drives the the action for the second half of the film sure all right so let's talk about the mechanics of scoring a film mm -hmm. i mean we've got like you've got the theoretical kind of philosophical considerations um but uh you know i'm a guy who is the nerd who will watch like the making of documentaries on the blu-ray sure kind of stuff. <laughs> and they always sort of skip over the idea that i find fascinating like the idea of synchronization and mm -hmm. then trying to like really tie the music to the moment in film. So you know, we, we could talk about like the, the leitmotifs and we could talk about like the, the sort of like thematic elements, but what's the actual sort of mechanical process of scoring a film? Like, do you start with the music or do you just sort of like kind of jam along with the scene a little bit and see where it goes? How does that work? Um, I mean, I you know, every I imagine there are multiple approaches that can work. I can tell you what what worked for me, which was to go chronologically through the film, because I knew that if I generated too much musical material outside of the film, I would have to try to cram it into right. a space where it might not fit. So I, I really did compose the music along with watching the film and thinking about the timing of the mm -hmm. phrases as it went by. So for me, having the you know, and I you know went have my laptop set up. I have the film in one corner. I have my music notation software in the other corner, and just kind of going back and forth the two uh, between the two and playing what I had so far, seeing you know does this roughly sync up with what's on the screen and. And, and that was the sort of mechanical nuts and bolts, you know, yeah. matching up. Um, in a Hollywood film, when you have a studio orchestra come in, they're very often playing to a click track, which keeps them exactly on tempo. And because all of this is, is you know, enhanced by technology and because you have the editing process putting things together, you might see a tempo marking on a piece of, of music that someone's reading that says something like quarter note equals 102.7, mm -hmm. right? Because the, the computer can figure that out and get the timing to be exactly right and give you a click track that it gives you that exact timing. And if everyone plays with a click track, everything's great. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a live performance. We don't have an editor who's going no. to make everything sync. So my solution to that problem of what happens if we get off mm -hmm. is there are many, many points in the score where the conductor is instructed to hold until a specific thing happens on the screen. Oh. So if I set a tempo and I say quarter note equals 60, which is like the second hand on a clock, right? If I set that tempo and the conductor who is not a robot mm -hmm. conducts it, 59 or mm -hmm. 61 that doesn't matter because there's enough wiggle room in the material that there will soon be a point where there's a hold mm -hmm. maybe there's a cymbal rolling maybe there is a pitch that's sustaining and that'll be held until the next event happens in the film and then they can regroup mm -hmm. so there are many sort of 
pressure valves that can right. let off the steam <laughs> for the, the coordination to, to work. And so that's that's the theory I went on, and we will see soon if it worked. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm definitely rooting for you. Like that's, that's, it's, it's a lot of moving parts, and yeah. like I said, this is basically wizardry. So, um, so you know, we haven't actually seen the, pro- the finished product yet. We're sure. a couple weeks out from that. It's coming up, which as I'm sure you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> What did you learn from this project? Like what, you know, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an academic podcast. We talk, you know, we're teachers. We talk about this stuff. And one right. of the big things is what did you learn from this thing you did? Right. So what, what's, what's come out of it? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure that if you ask me this question six months from now, I will have a fuller answer for you, but mm-hmm. I'm in the throes of it still. And I'm still kind of sifting through it. But one thing I can definitely say and things that I will be conveying to my students is that when you have a large project Mm -hmm. setting small manageable goals for achieving the larger whole is crucial to keep you from letting that deadline slide Mm -hmm. um i you know was very fortunate to have a sabbatical and have the time that i needed but it would have been very easy to think oh i have months Mm -hmm. (laughs) it'll be fine i can kick off today Mm -hmm. but i i I really sat down and it's it's as unglamorous as saying okay there is about two and a half hours of film and so i have x number of weeks and that means i have to have x number of minutes of film scored per week to Mm -hmm. have the draft done by early december which was my goal and you had to grind it out yeah. every day. And that, you know, again, you know, that's the unglamorous part of it is that every day you mm-hmm. are making progress. And some days you make more than others. And some days you, the progress you made isn't really what it needed to be. And so you have to double back. It's not a straight line. Mm-hmm. But having these little internal goals of every week, I have to get roughly this far really helped me. And so, it's that kind of long-term planning and time management that I, I want to shout to my students from the rooftops, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and now that I'm on the other side of completing the score, you know, I, I guess, you know, on a very personal level, I've learned that I can do it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was capable of doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And so now it's, you know, we're, we're at the top of the mountain and we're rolling down now. So it's all about, uh, you know, every, everything's in motion and we mm-hmm. just got to see it through to the end. But, uh, you know, it, it does feel pretty good to see this you know, giant binder full of score pages mm-hmm. and, and have, you know, to say, hey, I made that. So that's right. pretty great. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And so you're definitely pulling a lot from this. So I guess my next question is, and this is probably way too early. <laughs> Have you ever thought about doing this for any other films? Um, in an abstract, hypothetical future, possibly. Sure. One that you, <laughs> you don't know? have to actually commit to. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this. And so, yes, I, it's something that I could absolutely see myself doing again. Um, you know, a few people, now that they've seen this score, said, why didn't you start with something shorter? You know, why not a 30-minute film? Why'd you have to do the two-and-a-half-hour film? And I, I don't know, because it was there, you know. Well, I mean, but, it's, it's, <laughs> plus it's Metropolis. I it's mean, Metropolis. Like, it's, it's sort of made for this kind it, of thing. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really what it is. You can project whatever music you want onto it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, but it, but sure, I mean, this, this, this was really fun for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would love to to contemplate another project at some point. But first, I'll need a nap. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Like, ask, I'll ask you again in six months. Sounds uh, good. Sounds we'll, good. Maybe we'll come back and talk about it. Uh, and so uh, the other part of this show that uh, did not tell you about at the start of the show 
is that the the main thesis that we alluded to is that you know we are pop culture and pop culture is us that's sort of the definition of pop culture mm-hmm. and some culture some pop culture is more acceptable than others right like if you say for example i am a fan of breaking bad nobody's gonna look at you twice right <laughs> if you say for example that like i would and this is i told you this already but I, you know this i'm already people know if you say <laughs> that i am a fan of professional wrestling then people look at you askance right so my the, the part of the thing is i want to try to sort of celebrate the variety of popular culture and what people get into uh, and so the segment that we're now going to introduce, and Michelle has been gracious enough to be the first test patient for this. I have no idea what she's going to say, by the way. <laughs> just so just so we're clear, I have no idea what her answer to this question is going to be. Is um, so, but the segment is called "Defend Your Fandom." Okay. Defend your fandom. We all have things that we are fans <laughs> of. Some things that we are okay with admitting. Other things we're not. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to put you on the spot. Here's the here's how it's going to work. I'm going to ask you to identify the fandom that you. Are, you should be ashamed of, but maybe you're not, mm-hmm. um, or however you want to uh, t- uh, take this, and uh, give me a minute or two explaining it, and then we'll have a little conversation slash cross-examination okay. based on the answers. Okay. So, uh, Michelle, defend your fandom. I need to defend my fandom of a certain branch of reality TV programming mm-hmm. that is the skill-based competitive reality TV programming. I cannot get enough of Top Chef, Project mm-hmm. Runway, Chopped, and then like the and some of those are not maybe embarrassing to admit, but then it gets into like, you know, cutthroat kitchen. Do you know that one? It's Alton Brown who, mm-hmm. who has the, he has the chefs buy a series of sabotages that they can force on each other. And so, you know, the challenge is make a grilled cheese. Mm-hmm. Oh, but for $500 or whatever they bid on, you can make them use, you know, this, the cheese off of this stale plate of nachos for their grilled cheese, right? It's terrible to make these people do this, right? These are real chefs doing this and they're using these terrible ingredients but man is it fun Mm -hmm. um so there there is drama there is editing everyone always blames the bad edit when they come off badly on these shows but i cannot get enough of these shows and i fantasize even though i don't cook well even though i cannot so i have had dreams about being contestant on these kinds of shows okay (laughs) so that's interesting um you know you are it's this is not one of the first things I would have thought of um, okay. when it came to a fandom that's worth defending, but you do sort of seem like there's a there's a sheepishness to it, <laughs> a sheepishness. There we go. I can pronounce things. Yeah. Um. And, and I wonder why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it is that you know you're a little on the fence about just coming out and saying I love Cutthroat Kitchen and I don't care who knows it. Um. Well, because. You know, all of these things are so manipulative, Uh right? Um, And so it's that part of it that makes me second guess it. The thing that keeps me coming back is the resourcefulness that people have to Mm -hmm. show to get through a challenge like that. And so even though, you know, nobody is actively sabotaging me in my daily life, you know, that I know of anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. who knows, conspiracy theories abound. But but (laughs) you never know. That's the thing. They wouldn't tell you. Right, right. And, you know, you're not paranoid if they are out to get you. But no, but the, but the idea that like, um, you know, that, that 
people can adapt mm -hmm. to whatever's thrown at them is a compelling idea to me. So that's what keeps me coming back. But it's it's like it feels like there ought to be a more uplifting way to learn that lesson. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's but sort of at the core of reality television, I think, is this idea that we are taking everyday situations and everyday people, but we are exaggerating them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like we are taking this thing that the situation that you might come across at work or in, or in your personal life or something like that. But now we're adding, you know, nacho cheese to it. Now we're adding <laughs> this immunity idol to it. And so it's almost like the reward of the show, this idea of reality. I mean, first off, it's a very synthetic uh, vision of reality, sure. right? Um, but it is this sort of more palatable, like heightened reality that is more entertaining and interesting than actual reality because uh -huh. you know let's let's think about it for a second like most people's real reality show if like there's a reality show about you um certainly about me it would just be i'm sitting at the i'm sitting on the couch i'm yelling at the tv <laughs> it's pretty it's it's not super interesting <laughs> so um what do you what do you think about that oh gosh um i mean that i guess i mean don't we all want to on some level star on our own private shows, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so that I guess that heightened quality of of the show is is, is sort of I mean, it's why people go on these in the first place, mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, I, I, you know, it, it, it makes the mundane that much more important. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's a complicated thing. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. But but again, like uh, th this is a thing that really, you know, it comes about as a result as sort of a search by uh, television programmers for cheap programming. But it speaks to us on this thing, like, you know, if you go back to like the sort of the origins of reality TV, like it starts out with cops, right? Right. Yeah. Like that was Fox saying, okay, you know, it'd be a great idea. Like, let's get a camera crew and we'll just send them along with peace up with police officers and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Like it could be anything. It could be nothing. It could be anything, but people will watch and they did for years. Yeah. Like, that show might still be on. I don't know. I, you know, I, I've lost track, but it's like, you know, and that one, you know, that one I can't get into at all because that's real people having real problems, mm -hmm. right? And at least with the kinds of shows that I'll like let myself watch, it's like, well, at least people hopefully kind of know what they're signing up for. They right. deliberately put themselves yeah. in that situation, you know? So like, there's a, there's a line there. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I watch these shows and I enjoy them. And then, you know, as soon as they're done, I stop thinking about them. And so yeah. like, like, you know, I should be watching, you know, classic films. I should be watching, you know, more, more, more nutritious stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, my brain needs the brain candy sometimes, you know? Yeah. I mean, like we're like, I mean, honestly, we're in an era, you know, a lot of critics, you know, uh, scholars have called it the peak television era. Like yeah. There is there is more television and it is of a generally higher quality. Even the stuff that's kind of like the B level stuff is still leagues better than it's ever been. Right. Yeah. And you're right in that sometimes like, you know, it's exhausting to keep up all these prestige dramas and these things, these critically acclaimed performances. You just want Alton Brown. Yeah. Just telling people, all right, you want to give that guy some rotten eggs to make a salad? You just, here you go. Give me some money. Like there's, there, you're right. There's sort of an elemental appeal to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I, I don't know. And my husband's a really good cook, and so sure. watching these things with him is pretty fun because, like, sometimes I will pause it and I'll be like, hey, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And he usually has a solution, you know. And yeah. I just, I like, I so I, I, I fantasize to be like the kind of person who would be able to, in a pinch, come sure. up with the great solution to you know losing all your knives and having to, um, you know, use like tin foil for all of your tools as mm-hmm. one of the sabotages. Like, okay, That's I'm gonna make good. a knife out of tin foil. Like, how are you gonna do that, right? And and some people really struggle and they go home and the ones who figure it out they you know they they level up they right. go to the next yeah, round yeah. you know <laughs> well i gotta be honest now i kind of want to watch the show yeah yeah, yeah check I, it out i can't I, I did not come in thinking you know what i gotta do when i get home is watch cutthroat kitchen <laughs> and now you have convinced me that maybe i should All right michelle thank you very much uh it's been a pleasure talking to you about metropolis and uh uh, we'll go ahead and uh, leave it there. So thank you again. All right. Thank you. All right, thank you. And so that's it. We made it. We're done. That's the first episode of Serious Fun here on Phoenix Studios Network. I uh, want to give a very special thank you once again to our special guest, Michelle McQuaid Dewhurst. Again, check out Metropolis if you are in the area. It is going to be going on at 730 on April 28th. Uh, at the Widener Center here on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Very excited. I'm definitely going to be there. I'm looking forward to it. I also want to give a special thanks to some of the folks who helped get this show on the air and helped make it happen. Of course, big thanks to Kate Farley and Kim Vlees. Uh, Kim Vlees, of course, did the fantastic album art you see. If you downloaded this on iTunes, it's me going like, ah. Um, That's on there, and Kate uh, does all the stuff. She really kind of put this thing together. Uh, And, of course, I want to give a sort of special spiritual thank you to uh, Dr. Ryan Martin, who sort of uh, pushed and inspired uh, me to get back into the podcasting game at the academic level. So uh, big thanks to all those guys, as well as Janet Bonkowski and everybody at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, uh, and everybody involved with Phoenix Studios. And a big thank you to you for listening. Uh, If you want to hear some more podcasts, you can go to uwgb.edu slash podcasts. A lot of great shows there for you to check out. And if you have any guests or anything that you want to uh, have me talk about on the show, um, somebody you want me to talk to, or just questions for some of the guests and some of the people you hear, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash learnonaut. That's astronaut, but with learning. So learnonaut. And I'll be happy to answer your question and see what we can get on there. So I've got some great stuff lined up, some great folks. uh, And I hope you'll be joining us on this journey going forward. So thank you very much once again for Serious Fun. I am Dr. Brian Carr. And you go out there and you have some fun. Bye.